Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Kids Health Info podcast, the podcast for parents about common child health concerns. I'm Dr Anthea Rhodes, paediatrician here at the RCH, and today I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr Margie Danchin. Hi, Anth. It's great to be here. From the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, this is the Kids Health Info podcast. Today's episode covers the incredibly important and very challenging issue of grooming and sexual assault. At times, it may be very confronting to listen to, and for some of our listeners, it may trigger painful emotions and experiences. And we'll be discussing things that aren't suitable for a child audience. Please feel free to stop listening if it becomes too much, and if you need some support, help is available at 1800 RESPECT. We've put some phone numbers and links in the show notes, and we'll read them out at the end of the show. So, Margie, today we do want to talk about the incredibly difficult topic of grooming and sexual assault, and... This has been really thrown into the fore this year, particularly with Grace Tame as Australian of the Year and other topics and related conversations that are happening in the media too. Absolutely. I mean, I think Grace Tame has generated a national conversation about this, which I think is so needed. And it has really got parents and all of us talking about, you know, how can we identify this? How can we prevent it? And it's really positive. But of course, it's a very difficult thing to talk about and to confront. And it has really affected a lot of people quite deeply I think. Absolutely and as parents and knowing how common grooming and sexual assault is it will have been perhaps a personal experience for a lot of people in their own childhood that's going to be triggering and then on top of that there's the challenge of you know how do I protect my child from this happening to them. And certainly schools in particular now are looking about how they can start education for children about recognising when this may be happening, what to do, how to talk with their parents about it. So I think what we're going to cover today is going to be really great for parents to hear and just raise that awareness even more. So Margie, joining us today to talk through this incredibly important and challenging topic is Associate Professor Anne Smith. Anne is a paediatrician here at the Royal Children's Hospital and she's been working in the field of child abuse, including child sexual abuse for what must it be, nearly 30 years, Anne? Yes, it is. Welcome. Thank you. So perhaps let's just start with discussing what grooming actually is. So as Margie and I have just mentioned before, you know, it can be a bit confusing to know what really is this and who does it happen to? Well, grooming is when a person develops a trusting relationship with a child or a person in the child's family with a view to sexually abusing the child at a later time. Okay. Now, that later time might be weeks, months or even years. So it can take some time to develop that trusting relationship. Okay. And it's not always just with the child. It can be the family members as well. It can. Okay. It can. And what sort of age, I guess, um, or old sex or gender of child is most at risk of this sort of behaviour? Well, it can happen to any child. Some children are a little more vulnerable than others by virtue of their neediness or their lack of supervision or just yeah. parents not totally being involved in the child's life or setting up the boundaries and rules. But in general terms, it can be any child, any time, any family, any socioeconomic strata. And how common is it? I mean, is this something that parents actually need to be aware of, do you think? Yes, it is. If we look at child sexual abuse in general, and the numbers will differ depending on what study you're looking at, what country, 
we're talking about approximately one in five girls and somewhere around about one in seven, one in ten boys will have had some sort of child sexual abuse experience by the time they turn 16. So that's actually quite common. Yes. It's enormous, isn't it? And I think then, you know, it's worth remembering too for parents listening at the moment that those sorts of figures then are the figures that we see in our adults in the population. So for a lot of people, this might bring up memories of things that they've experienced themselves. Yes, indeed. So one thing that I think is really interesting is where that line blurs, I guess, between grooming, so building a, a relationship with a child with that intent of sexually abusing or assaulting them, and with you know, someone who's just attentive or a nice person or, you know, really involved in a child's life. So how does that line get drawn and when does grooming become a crime? The uh, general principle in relation to grooming is that grooming is leading up to the child sexual abuse. So if you get to the point where a child's actually being engaged in sexual activities, whether that's face-to-face or online, then that becomes a sexual abuse experience as opposed to grooming. So the grooming is like the pathway that leads up to the sexual abuse. Right. There are several phases or stages of grooming. Uh, The first is targeting the child and then building the relationship, developing the trust. And then over time, that relationship becomes to the point where the boundaries are challenged and the boundaries then get challenged in a sexualised way. And then finally, the child's silenced, either by coercive um, measures or threats, sometimes saying to the child that they won't be believed or threatening that someone in their family will be harmed in some way Mm. or their pets might be harmed in some way to keep the child silent. And Anne, I just want to come back to what you said at the start about being a trusted adult. So these are often family members, teachers, you know, people in the child's sphere that we wouldn't necessarily think to be concerned about them. And I think that makes it really hard, doesn't it? It does. Look, there's a lot of good people out there. We can't assume that everybody who spends a lot of time working with children and really enjoys doing the right thing and teaching children, nurturing them, is up to no good or has some nefarious purpose. So there are a lot of good people on the planet. Yeah. Step one. Absolutely. Step two, parents are doing all they can to try and keep their children safe and to make sure that their children know that their parents are there to keep them safe. So a lot of the work that's done to try and intervene in the early stages of grooming relate to informing parents about the risk, helping them develop strategies so that they can intervene if their child is particularly vulnerable, and setting some rules at home around internet use, access to technologies, um, all the e-safety kind of rules about not giving out your address, being very wary about the people that your children might be relating to both Mm. face-to-face and online. Can you tell us a bit more about the type of grooming that happens online um, and and also how common that is? I don't know that we truly understand how common it is. The fear is that it's probably more common than we know about. Yes. Um, But we don't actually have very good data about online activities. What I can say is that the more police investigate, the more they find. So we're certainly cautious and wary about children's online activities and there is a lot of information available for parents now about e-safety and cyber safety and keeping your children safe online and I'd strongly encourage parents to really explore 
all of those avenues so they're well informed. Yeah, because it's a minefield, isn't mm. it? I mean, I don't know about you, Margie, with your kids, but certainly my older kids are increasingly spending a lot of time online. That's, you know, for learning. And last year through COVID and home learning, we know that time online and in some in some cases really lots of unsupervised time online happened in families yeah. and this is likely to be increasing their risk of being exposed to this sort of behaviour. And also the teenagers, the world that they live in and what their friends are doing, some of the behaviour like, you know, posting things online or taking photographs of themselves that we as adults would think are inappropriate is sort of a bit normalised in their peer groups and we have to, I think, intervene as adults mm. and say no but unfortunately, when you have those conversations with your teenagers, they say, well, but mum, everyone's doing it. I'm just going to take you back, Anne, to the concept of grooming and it can affect any sex and any age group. We classically think about child sexual abuse or an abuser, if you like, as perhaps an older male who's, you know, maybe going to be in a trench coat. But in fact, the type of abuse that you're describing here with grooming looks quite different to that, doesn't it? It does. It's really befriending the child forming a special relationship with the child, having the child feel that nobody else understands them or knows them quite as well as this person. Yeah. So they're the kind of, you know, prickles on the back of the neck, red flags that should make people just be a little bit more wary about someone who's showing your child, showing a child, undue attention. Mm. And of course, in families where there might be conflict for whatever reason or parents separating or other things happening, that child may be seeking that sort of external support and connection with a teacher or a coach. Filling a need is Mm. part of Mm. one of the, the phases, if you like, or stages of grooming. So targeting the child, forming the relationship, filling a need, breaking boundaries, mm. developing a sexualised content to it. And that's one of the, the things too that I think parents can be well informed about. So sometimes the person who is doing the grooming might appear to accidentally brush past a child's genitals. And so it sort of seems like it's just an accident that they might have touched them inappropriately or been a little bit too effusive with their kisses and hugs or those sort of things. So it's slowly, slowly breaking down the barriers and developing a sexualised content to it by making sexy jokes or by having sexual references in conversation, just slowly breaking down the wariness and introducing some sort of sexualised content to conversations. And then when the child's comfortable with those sort of sexualised conversations to then progress to additional sexual activities. Now, if it's online, it might be asking the child to expose themselves or to do something that's then streamed. It really does become a child sexual abuse scenario at that stage rather than grooming. So what you're saying is the child almost becomes a bit desensitised. They've lost their radar of Mm. picking up that this is a bit uncomfortable because they've sort of got a bit used to it. Indeed. My understanding is it can be weeks, months, even years sometimes. It can. Yeah, before you finally get to that point where then the the actual sort of, if you like, actual sexual abuse will start to happen. Yes. I know that um, sometimes parents might feel, oh, they're concerned about this behaviour and that they feel grooming is happening and that perhaps there is intent. But, of course, if no abuse, if you like, has taken place, where does that stand when it comes to the law and doing something about it? Well, perhaps if I start with, is it a crime, first up, and yes, it definitely is in states and also there's a Commonwealth law in relation to grooming 
particularly in relation uh, to Australia's relationship with overseas countries. Yes. So that's the Commonwealth law about grooming. In Victoria, there's a law that came in in 2014 that clearly says that grooming behaviour is a criminal activity and it applies to both the child and also to a family member who might be being groomed in order that the person who wants to sexually abuse the child has access to the child. Yeah, okay. So it's the two people who might be affected by it, not just the child. Yes. And it has to be an adult to be charged with a criminal offence, so the person has to be aged over 18. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't apply to similar sorts of behaviour between peers in terms of the law. So important for parents to know then, grooming is a crime and there is an avenue there, if you like, to have that actually followed as, as the pathway, you know, through the legal system as well. Okay, so and now that we have a clearer idea of exactly what grooming is, how can parents actually recognise when it's happening to their child? Depends a little bit on the age of the child, but the things that I'd be particularly concerned about would be if someone is showing your child undue attention, if they're giving them technology as a means of communication. So if someone gives your child a phone or gives your child an iPad or even gives them an Apple Watch or something like that, A, it's expensive and you're going to be pretty suspicious about that to start with. But if it's a means of communication with your child, that's a big red flag. If they're giving them gifts or taking them places or wanting to spend undue time with them, want to take your child to the movies, I'd be a little bit wary about adults wanting to spend one-on-one time with children. And if they're really trying to convince the child that this is a special relationship, so if the child is either very secretive and not letting you know exactly what's going on, that would make me nervous, or if they're showing a great deal of affection for this one particular adult and you're starting to feel a bit uncomfortable about it, trust your instincts. Mm. Trust your instincts. It's so hard, isn't it? Because you say some of these things and they kind of seem somewhat obvious you think oh well that would be odd you know an adult wanting to spend that sort of intense one-on-one time with a child or giving them a gift but my understanding is when this is happening it's so insidious that often it doesn't you know somehow the part of the whole process is that it doesn't seem so abnormal and that it becomes normalized for that young person and and the other family members and what would ordinarily if you step back look like a big red flag when you're in it can be really hard to see. And in fact, what I've been aware of in some of the the cases that I've, you know, been involved in is sometimes it's a friend of the child that alerts the parent. Um, Mm. I'm thinking more about teenagers here rather than primary school children. But that's actually happened where, you know, a friend of their child has said, I'm just a bit worried about this relationship. Did you know that your daughter was spending so much time with a basketball coach, for example? And so that's that can happen as well, can't it? And what a great friend. Yeah. Yes. People actually stepping in and not being a bystander. Mm. Mm. And I think that probably gets us on to the next thing to talk about, Anne, which is where how, how do people step in or, you know, confront, if that's the right word, um, a person if they're concerned they might actually be involved in this process of grooming their child? What can parents do? There's a term called confronting with kindness. That is a really nice approach, which is if you are suspicious but not certain, 
Yes. To approach the adult that you're worried about. Explain to them that you have boundaries for your child in relation to presence and time and contact with other children and their activities and all sorts of things. So you explain the boundaries. Now, if the person has innocently just gone a little bit too far and shown your child too much attention for kind reasons, not really trying to groom them, then that person will be horrified back off and be very sorry. And obviously that's a warning to them that they need to be pretty careful with their behaviour. If the person was grooming your child or the child for sexual abuse purposes, then that will be a very big signal that you're onto them and that they better stop quick smart. So confronting with kindness is a very useful two-step simple process that addresses suspicions Mm. that something might be going on. If it's actually more than a suspicion, if you hold a belief, then I think it's a criminal matter, it's a matter for the police to investigate. So contacting the police and reporting it. And if you don't want to... Um, indicate who you are. It can be done anonymously through Crime Stoppers. I think that's really important as well, the the anonymity, because what you know, where I have been involved in cases or read about this sort of thing, it seems like that concern about raising the flag and the consequences of that is so huge for people, and not just for the young person, but for the the other family members as well. That it becomes a huge barrier to actually stepping in and doing anything. That's what I was going to say, Anne, is just what do, do parents approach the child? Do they raise their concerns directly with the child or is that a no-no? No, I think if you know your child, you absolutely have the conversations. Mm. You let them know you want them to feel safe. You let them know you want them to be safe. There's no shame in being wrong. You can always ask your child, you know, you're a bit worried about what's going on with so-and-so. If your child is reassuring you in a convincing way, then phew, you sleep better at night. If they're reassuring you in a way that makes you feel more uncomfortable, then obviously you're going to take that further. So talking with them about, I'm really worried about how much time you're spending with this person and I'm really worried about why um, this relationship's becoming so important to you and it's making me uncomfortable. How do you feel about it? So having the conversation with them, you don't need to scare them just by telling them you don't want them to be sexually abused. You don't need to go that far. But just to say that you're starting to feel uncomfortable about that relationship, that you're their parent, you know them better than anybody else, you want them to talk to you about their problems and their interests and their hobbies and their thoughts and their friends, and just being a little bit um, wary about letting them explore relationships, even if it's online, Mm. that are secret. Anything that feels a bit secret, as a parent, you're going to go, hmm, this doesn't feel quite right. I want to know a lot more about this. And that's hard, isn't it? Because in adolescence with, you know, teenagers, that growing independence is part of being a teenager, not necessarily secrecy, but, you know, doing things that you're not going to tell your parents necessarily all about. It's easy with primary school children to say no technology in your bedrooms. And it's much easier to have rules around who they're allowed to communicate with online. But even primary school kids can communicate with people online Mm. who pretend to be someone that they're not. Yeah. You know, the catfishing thing. Yes. And that is really scary and dangerous because your children might be thinking they're communicating with an eight-year-old girl or a 12-year-old boy or vice versa, and really they're communicating with someone who has a persona of a child but is actually a man in his 30s who's 
grooming online and setting this up for either um, sexual activity online or possibly a face-to-face meeting down the track. Yes. And you just mentioned the term catfishing. Can you tell parents exactly what you mean by that? It's when someone has a persona online where they're putting themselves forward as being somebody that they're not. Usually it's someone pretending to be a child, saying that they've got the same hobbies or they've got the same interests or they're going to similar sort of school, developing a relationship with a child by falsely pretending to be someone that they feel the child might easily relate to. And when approaching these conversations, and I'm sure you'd say to parents, um, you know, keep the channels of communication open. Don't approach it in an aggressive, angry manner because the child's just going to shut down, right? Being available to talk to them when they want to talk to you, you know, that's the phrase. So being there, being available and being open to having some tricky conversations. Sometimes in the car. Sometimes in the car. They're trapped in the car. Side by side. Or watching sport, you know, when you again, alongside rather than that direct eye contact can be an easier way physically to have a difficult conversation perhaps with your teenager than um, if you just sit down across the dinner table and go, here we go, we're going to have this chat. Yes. And I just wanted to ask you if we take it one step further and, of course, something has happened and then, you know, the, the child sexual abuse, if you like, has occurred, that's obviously incredibly distressing um, and there's a whole process around that. Um, how would you sort of, what would you say to parents if that has happened in terms of seeking support ongoing and supporting their child? I mean, I know that's a really big conversation, but... It's a whole system response yes. to child sexual abuse. So there's a criminal aspect of it involving the police and getting evidence and preparing for court cases possibly down the track. There's the counselling side of things, and that's obviously very, very important in an ongoing way, not just for the affected child, but for their parents and people around the child. There's the medical aspects in terms of assessing whether there might be, it's very rare, but might be injuries or infections or some other medical things that need to be taken into consideration and treated. And then there's the long-term disruption to relationships, because often with child sexual abuse, it's... uh, happened within the context of a relationship with someone that the child already knows. And that has long-term implications in terms of understanding and navigating relationships for people going forward. It certainly can. And then compounded if the family has been split apart because of that or loyalties have been divided or there's financial implications and, you know, it's huge. And I think something that might be worth talking about, Anne, is, you know, what actually constitutes abuse as well because sometimes people think this needs to be you know intercourse with the child or needs to be really quite extreme types of sexual activity Um, but in fact it it might look quite different to that. In children yes I agree with you we we tend to imagine sex as in what adults do but in terms of child sexual abuse very broad range and can range from exposing a child to sexual material yes through to penetrative intercourse yeah and everything in between yeah and so even at that end where yeah it might be exposure of materials or concepts that in and of itself is abuse too and I think that might be you know uh, important for families and parents listening to understand that if that sort of thing is happening that's that serious one of the things that I understand happens in grooming is that the person doing the grooming can be so, I guess, incredibly 
skilled and manipulative that they may even anticipate some of that and say oh well you know mum and dad will say you're not allowed to talk to me or that I'm not a good person but they don't really know they don't really know you like I know you so we don't have to tell them so you know how do you kind of navigate that with a child and and prep them for that happening too? Starting early with differentiating between secrets and surprises. Yes. So a surprise is a good thing. You can have a surprise for a birthday present. You yep. can have a surprise we're going on a picnic today. Surprises are good. Secrets, on the other hand, are something you should be very wary about. So if someone asks you to keep a secret, mummy and daddy don't want that to happen. Mummy and daddy want to be able to talk with you about everything in your life. And if you've laid down the groundwork from when they're preschool age, it becomes a lot easier to then talk about secrets once they're in primary school and secondary school. And that's the same for the online space as well as face-to-face, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, really important, I think, to recognise that. Is there anything they can do to really prevent this happening to their child? I think the answer to that is probably not entirely because... It can be so insidious and it can happen to anybody. And I wouldn't want to create the impression that it is totally preventable because then it leads your thinking towards, okay, if it's preventable, then how come this parent let it happen? Parents don't let Mm. it happen. And then there's that blame element or or guilt. Absolutely, which is enormous and then perpetuates the secrecy that is a big part of the problem. Indeed. So I think we can do all that we can but accept that people who groom children are very good at it. They're like spies, you know, they're skilled. So we can't blame parents if it happens in their family. Absolutely, really important. Parents need to know that there's a lot of support and resources out there for them to reach for, um, you know, that they're not alone. They're definitely not alone. There is a lot of information available and there are people that can be contacted to get the help that you need when you need it. So perhaps, Anne, you could talk about a couple of those resources for us so parents, if they're perhaps listening and they want to look at things, where they might go. Well, if you're a child, I think the Kids Helpline is very useful. As an adult, uh, if you are certain, then police or crime stoppers. And if you need help and you want to contact a centre against sexual assault, they're also available by telephone. And there are websites galore. There's a Think You Know UK website that is very good. Raising Children Network also has some information about grooming. And I quite like the Victorian Government um, Education Department website in relation to grooming and child sexual exploitation. Great. So we'll put some links to all of those in the show notes for anyone listening who wants to perhaps, um, you know, have a look at those things later. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Anne. A difficult topic, but a really important one. And I think we've touched on a lot of really important messages there that parents can take away and perhaps protect their children from some of these really difficult things that happen. Thanks, Anne. Thank you. If you found the information in today's episode distressing or you would like support for any reason, please contact Lifeline on 13114. Centres Against Sexual Assault provide 24-hour crisis support and in Victoria can be accessed by calling 1800 806292. Please see our show notes for support lines for other states and territories. And as always, if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and even better, please share with your friends and family to keep this vitally important discussion happening. Thanks for listening.
information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, discussions with your doctor or healthcare professional. If you are concerned about your child, please consult your local healthcare professional for further advice.